we've reached a special moment in our story, a rather special moment in European history. We're about to enter a very exciting world, the pulsating, unpredictable, unique, precious, mad and modern moment that was Weimar Germany. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece, and this is episode seven, The Outsiders. When we talk about the Weimar period, we mean specifically the years between the end of the First World War and the arrival into power of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the Nazis, in 1933. But as an idea, Weimar feels broader. It conjures up images of sexual freedom, wild artistic expression, difficult and dark themes, and a crooked sense of humour. It's a moment, and it's a style, and it's an era in itself. But what really chimes with us in this story can be found in a quotation from a seminal book called Weimar Culture, The Outsider as Insider, by Peter Gay. Gay says this of the era. Weimar culture was the creation of outsiders propelled by history into the inside for a short, dizzying, fragile moment. Who are these outsiders? He describes them as Democrats, Jews, avant-garde artists, you name it, who were now decision-makers and in charge of museums, orchestras, theatres and academic institutions. We've come across a very personal notion of the outsider twice already, with Krista Winslow and Leontine Zagen. Neither woman was comfortable in the world into which she was born. Both found a family in the arts. Leontine was adamant that her Jewishness was never an issue to her or anyone until things got ugly in the 1930s. But what about Krista? How could she consider herself as an outsider? She came from the aristocracy, married into the aristocracy, was always a little bit aristocratic. Not just aristocratic, but Prussian, from a very patriarchal, very conventional world of order and status. Krista pushed against this world all her life, and yet never fully left it. If all of society had been quite as free and accepting as Weimar Berlin was, then perhaps she needn't have pushed so hard. After the failure of her marriage, Krista had gone back to her beloved Munich, which is where we find her, for the time being financially supported by her ex-husband, the Baron Lajos Hotvony, known to all as Lotzi. Here she bought a pretty sizeable house, big enough to contain a studio and her menagerie of pets. She had a lot of animals, around 40 at one point. She loved animals, and she loved drawing and sculpting them. But let's face it, when you think of Art Deco, animals are often at the forefront. Sleek dogs, running deer. Krista's subjects were less, shall we say, elegant, perhaps. Guinea pigs, meerkats, rabbits. Yes, meerkats. I'm not sure if she actually kept them, but she certainly had a love for them. She visited Munich Zoo frequently and made sketches of exotic species. She also had an abiding love for Mopsa. That's German for pugs. In fact, she seems to have been responsible for converting many Germans to the breed. This is what a British newspaper had to say about the issue much later, 
1932. The Baroness spends much time in Munich, and in that town she created a fashion for English pug dogs. She bought a pair in Birmingham years ago, and the progeny of these two abound in the fashionable homes of the stately German resort. She does all her writing in bed to the accompaniment of the snores of four pugs, which lie at the foot of the coverlet. In the zoo, Krista sat contentedly among the visitors and sketched away. Back home, she let her animals run wild in her studio to get a better idea of their form and movement. What a sight that must have been, with her chipping away while rabbits, pugs and guinea pigs meandered among the artworks. And she wrote about this eccentric existence as well, providing the publication Querschnitt with delightful word sketches of her colourful artistic life. Writing was not a novelty to Krista. She'd been doing it for a while. In fact, while she was still married and living as a baroness in Hungary, she'd written a book. It was called Das Schwarze Schaf, or The Black Sheep. I have to come clean. I haven't read it. I really want to read it, but I failed to get hold of a copy. And besides, I don't think it exists in translation. But I do know what it's about, and the subject matter will sound familiar. It's about a girl who feels that she's an outsider both at school and later as an artist, training to be a sculptor. She wins acceptance eventually when she marries the right kind of man. Krista made another attempt to wrestle with issues that played on her mind relating to gender and sexuality with a novella called Männer kehren heim, or Men Return Home, which was unpublished at the time. It's set during the First World War and centres around a girl who avoids the attention of soldiers by dressing in her brother's clothes. I feel that because trouser wearing is a recurrent theme in Christa's fictional work, that I shouldn't sideline it. The danger is that we trivialise it because it seems so slight a rebellion for us today. But you only have to think about how Quentin Crisp was regularly beaten up for walking around in public with nail varnish and a large floppy hat to realise how unbending society was about what it saw as cross-dressing. Krista's obsession with trouser-wearing was not only about seeking more comfortable attire, although God knows that would be fair enough. Her characters craved masculine clothes as a form of self-expression. And it went deeper still. Often for Krista, it was the child in her and her characters that wanted to wear trousers, an uncensored, honest crying out to be allowed to be different or more true to herself. I wonder if Krista ever had in mind Rosa Bonheur, the French artist, the most famous female French artist of the 19th century, who died when Krista was 11. Bonheur, an animalier or animal artist, just like Krista, wore trousers when she worked because she insisted that they gave her freedom of movement. She needed a special licence from the French government to do this. Extraordinary as that sounds today. Trousers for Bonheur were not only a symbol of freedom, but also of her sexuality. At least Krista didn't have to wait long until trousers finally became a little more acceptable as women's wear. Within just a couple of years, and thanks partly to another German cinema icon, trousers on women became rather desirable. When Marlene Dietrich sauntered into frame in her top hat and tails in the 1930 movie Morocco, she startled, and I suspect massively turned on, the cinema-going world. Look up the scene. It's electrifying. 
Krista's approach to writing fiction, then, was rooted in her own world experience, specifically her youth and what she considered the cruelties inflicted during that period. It would suggest that an awful lot still simmered underneath and that it would have to come out in one form or another. It might also eventually mean her having to choose between sculpture and writing as her preferred form of expression. Krista's life was busy and very social. She went to parties, entertained friends and travelled. Among her dinner party guests was Erica Mann, the daughter of Thomas Mann, the writer. Erica was an actress, openly gay, and luckily for us later on, a prolific memoirist. She recalled her friendship with Krista, describing her as a beautiful and amusing society woman who ran an expansive household in Munich. In Hungary, where of course Lotzi Hotfony had been great friends with Erika's father, she remembered Krista hosting salons with her husband for the great and good in the arts. In Munich, Krista continued to hold exquisite parties for interesting and noteworthy guests. And it was at one of these that Erika remembered her hostess announcing her plan to write a play about her experiences as a child at boarding school. Erika went on to explain that in her opinion, Krista had guarded in her heart and now rediscovered a simple, strong and genuine feeling. Looking back on the phenomenon that was Mädchen in uniform, Erika felt that Krista had expressed her feelings in such a way that thousands of other people, specifically women, had, I quote, recognised the pain and ecstasy of their own childhood, their own first love, which had, in their own hearts, been overlaid, but never stifled, the poignant feeling of recognition. Years later, Christo would shy away from any suggestion that she was speaking for anyone other than herself. But like it or not, her play would not only speak to others very vividly, but dramatically transform her own life. Christa surrounded herself with a wide circle of friends, it's friends, or at least well-connected acquaintance, who can help a person out when it comes to staging a play. Krista's play was called Ritter Nerestan, or The Night Nerestan. It was set in a pre-war boarding school for the daughters of the Prussian elite. Its central character was a motherless girl called Manuela von Meinhardis, who eventually kills herself by jumping from a window. Krista had clearly tied together her remembered feelings with the true story of the girl at her school who had severely injured herself making a similar suicide attempt. The title comes from the character Manuela portrays in her school play when she blurts out her love for her teacher. The character will later be changed to Don Carlos for the film. I've read that it was Erica Mann and her brother Klaus, to whom she was very close, who pulled some strings and got the play performed on a smallish scale at the Schauspielhaus in Leipzig. A young actress was found to play Manuela. Her name was Hertha Thieler. Hertha plays a very important part in our story. Not only is she central to so much of what will happen, but so much of what we know about the making of Mädchen in Uniform comes from her. Hertha was still very young, only 22, and was based at the Leipzig Theatre. Her very first stage appearance there had been in Ferdinand Bruckner's play Krankheit der Jugend, or Sickness of Youth, 
in which she played a chambermaid who, out of love for a student, allows herself to be sent out to work the streets. She later remembered that the story was considered so unpleasant and deviant that while half the audience applauded, the other half shouted abuse. One man climbed to the front of the seats and called the lead characters damn mongrels who should have a bucket of cold water thrown on them. Her next appearance was in another Bruckner play called Creator or Creature. In this she played a lesbian who sets out to seduce a young girl. Hertha later recalled being approached to play the part of Manuela by the director Otto Werther. She read Christa's script and told him, The role is wonderful, but the play itself is pretty poor. Werther was taken aback by her response, telling her that he'd accepted the play for the very reason that it would build up her career. Hertha looked very childlike and sweet. She was blonde and slim, with a clear, open face and dreamy eyes. In actuality, she was a tough cookie who fought for the best roles and pushed herself in her career. Later on, she would grow to be very politically driven and unwilling to compromise on the kinds of parts she played. She always, it seems to me, picked parts that were complicated or might be considered provocative. Playing opposite her in the Fräulein von Bernburg role was an actress called Claire Harden. I can't find much about her, but Hertha described her as frumpy and pushing 50. The relationship between the two was portrayed as mother and child, and there was no suggestion of anything erotic going on. The Leipzig premiere of Ritten Eristan took place around Christmas 1930. Sitting in the audience at that first performance was the Baron Lajos Hotfany, still supporting his wife despite the state of their marriage. For Krista Winslow, the whole experience was a positive one. She was delighted with the performance and gave the leads gifts after the first night. It spurred her on to find a new venue for her play. It was Berlin or Bust. And so it was a combination of legwork and connections, but mainly legwork. Just like everyone else who wanted to be noticed, she had to tout her work around. Having changed the name of the play to Gestern und Heute, which means yesterday and today, she started the process of getting directors and producers interested in her work. Now, I've got here an account from one of those very producers that she went to see. It's a perfect insight into how that play in its first raw form was received. Among the many manuscripts that have been sent to me since I became a producer was one called Yesterday and Today by Krista Winslow. Yesterday and Today was an original play and true to life, but it was technically rough and amateurish in its dramaturgical structure. Nonetheless, I liked this unusual play about girls in a Prussian boarding school and made the author's acquaintance. Winslow's name as a writer was not yet established. Like most unknown authors in Berlin, she had received the same treatment as little-known actors knocking in vain on the doors of the mighty directors. For the director of a large city theatre, it would be a risk. Paying the wages of professional actors for the usual four-week rehearsal would surely tax even the adventurous. And even if one could find a place in the multifaceted, sophisticated Berlin repertoire for this play, would one find a public interested in the sorrows of a schoolgirl? 
These are the words of Leontine Sargon. If you remember, Leontine had gone to Berlin to look for something more challenging and exciting. But by now, she knew all about knocking on theatre managers' doors and getting turned away. Both women had recently turned 40 and both were struggling. Neither expected fame or recognition. Both were going with the flow, doing what they felt might lead to some meaningful work. Leontine mulled over the pros and cons of directing this new play and had finally convinced herself that she ought to give it a go when she got an excited call from Krista saying that the eminent theatre director, Viktor Barnovsky, was interested in the play and wanted to talk to Leontine about how they should stage it. This was a big break for both women. Originally an actor, Barnovsky took over the Kleiner Theater Unter den Linden from Max Reinhardt, remember him? The master, and went on to manage several theatres during an illustrious career. By the time Christa's play was placed before him, he was in control of a string of theatres called the Barnovsky Stages. Having said that, Leontine found him a nightmare to work with, with his constant interference with her direction, creating what she later described as four weeks of incessant strife. In Leontine's hands, yesterday and today took on a very different form. For Leontine, investing truth and emotion in a production was vital. She was always intent on bringing out what she called the psychology of the piece. She must have seen more in it, understood it better, let's say, than the Leipzig director. Her casting is interesting. Out went the mumsy Claire Harden, and in came Margareta Meltzer, striking, blonde and athletic, described as masculine. Playing Manuel at first was Gina Falkenberg, a very attractive stage and film actress who would go on to star in some glitzy German films in the 30s. Falkenberg was eventually replaced by Hertha Thieler, who had first played the role in Leipzig. I wonder if Leontine's clashes with Barnowski were due to differences over casting decisions. She doesn't specify. But clearly the way the play was cast was essential in terms of what it had to say and what the audience would pick up from it. A lesbian emphasis was, by all accounts, evident in this version. Regardless of any artistic antagonism, the play was a huge success. Suddenly, two women who had considered their careers heading in a downward trajectory were enjoying a little bit of limelight again. I say enjoying. Krista always suffered physically with nerves when her work was on show, and yesterday and today was no exception, triggering stomach aches and anxiety on its opening night. It was 1930. The German cinema industry was going through a magnificent flush of creativity, and film producers were always on the lookout for stories. From the very beginning of the moving pictures, new and fresh story ideas was the obsession of filmmakers. In the early days, scenarios were often simple ideas that were fleshed out literally as the filming was taking place. The American movie pioneer, D.W. Griffith, would describe a scene to his players and then just tell them to go and do it, describing it further as they went along. As film became more sophisticated and longer, a reel graduating into two and then more, the stories themselves had to be more complex. They would need, in other words, 
to be written down and learnt. Studios were businesses and relied on a constant stream of new work to keep them running. Filmable stories were gold dust, whether they were books, plays or original scripts. And when one enterprising legend of the German cinema heard about an all-woman play set in a boarding school, he suddenly knew he had a potential winner. Next time on The Kiss, we'll find out how Leontine went about recreating a world dreamt up by Krista and how a masterpiece came about so unexpectedly. The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece. Researched, written and presented by Bibi Berkey. Studio production was by Francis Nutby Mother. It was directed by Mark Lingwood and the original music was composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions. <laughs>